we just, again, appreciate uh, your word and all that it teaches us. And there's this little story here at the end of chapter 21 that, that just is, there's just a great lesson here for all of us who are believers to learn. And Lord, uh, that lesson is that uh, we're to invest in eternity, that we're to have an eternal perspective as we approach life. Uh, in general, and that's really hard to do, Lord. We, we, uh, most of us are so preoccupied with uh, this present life, with our jobs, and with our, with our children, and with our uh, grandchildren, and with our homes, and all the things that come in this present life. That sometimes, Lord, we fail to have an eternal perspective. But, Lord, teach us through this lesson today how important it is not just for eternity, but for this present life that we do uh, live for you and we, we have an eternal perspective. So, Lord, uh, it's just a really good lesson to learn. It's a short lesson, uh, but, Lord, uh, uh, very important lesson. So help us to learn it by the power of your Holy Spirit today. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So we are... If you come to, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 21, and we'll be looking at the very last part of that chapter today. And we are going to learn an important lesson about living life with an eternal perspective. Uh, Hopefully most of us do that at least some of the time, but I think as I said in the prayer, it's really, really hard to do that all of the time because we're preoccupied with the things of this world. But Jesus taught that very lesson, if you remember, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in Mark chapter 6, verse 19, listen to what he says. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, we could tell a lot about where our hearts are by how we invest our money, our time, and our energy. If we don't do anything but invest in this world, then more than likely we have little or no heart for God. Uh, but if we live our lives as Christians with eternity in mind, that's a very good sign that our hearts do belong to the Lord. But even then, I mean, even if we're trying to live with an eternal perspective of life, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because we do have so many things to deal with in this present life, and so we get so uh, focused on on our, just our worldly, secular lives, that often we forget to, to, to be uh, concerned about the sweet by and by, and, and all we're really concerned about is this, this present time in which we live. But in this story that we're going to look at today, in, in uh, chapter number 21, we're going to learn that when we live with eternal an eternal perspective, and we invest in eternity, it's going to pay great dividends in this present life in which we live. And that's not just an Old Testament principle. That's a New Testament principle. That's a principle we see throughout the Bible. I don't know if you, if you remember, but 
but Peter was moaning one day about uh, all they had invested in eternity, about how he said to Jesus, see, look, we've left everything to follow you. And I, and I, I mean, Jesus could have really hammered him at that point, and he probably deserved to be hammered, but he didn't. Listen to what he says. So Jesus answered and said, Surely I say to you, Peter, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake or the gospel's sake who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What Jesus was saying to Peter was this, that those who invest in eternity are ensuring themselves a blessed life uh, in this present age in which they live. So uh, that's exactly what Abraham is learning as we come to chapter 21. And maybe he's already learned this lesson, and we're going to see him investing in eternity, and uh, but he's going to end up Uh, being able to enjoy that investment in his uh, latter years of life. So let's pick up where we left off last time. And Abraham and his wife Sarah and their new baby Isaac were living in Gerar in the land of the Philistines. Uh, Actually, they weren't actually living in the city. They were living a little south of there, probably real close to Ziglag. You remember what Ziglag where Ziglag was, that was where uh, David lived when he was uh, hiding out from Saul, and, and when he lived in the land of the Philistines. And the reason he chose that land, because it was pretty close to the promised land, but it was on the other side of the border. And that's probably in the general area where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac were living at this point, down at, real close to the bottom of Israel. You've got the Negev, which is that bottom inverted triangle Uh, of Israel, that bottom half, and way down at the bottom tip of that triangle is the city of Beersheba. And so they were living just west of Beersheba, uh, real close to Ziglag, uh, and uh, Abraham was doing pretty well. I mean, Abraham was a very wealthy man. I mean, he was a wealthy man more than likely when he left the land of Ur of Chaldea, but his wealth had only increased. I mean, it had increased when he had gone down to, to Egypt, and it had increased when he had gone down to Gerar, and it had increased while he was in the promised land. And so he was, his wealth was multiplying. His money, was, his silver and gold were multiplying. Uh, the number of sheep he had and cattle he had were multiplying. And more importantly, uh, to the king of Gerar, his, the number of his male servants were multiplying. You remember years and years earlier, when Lot was captured by those four kings and taken away, uh, how Abraham had mounted an army of his own servants of about 300 servants. Well, several years had passed now, and he had picked up servants in Egypt, and he had picked up servants in Gerar, and those servants had had children, and they had grown up. And so now he probably has thousands of male servants. So if you're the king of Gerar and uh, Abimelech, and you see Abraham with this large number of male servants who could be possibly be soldiers, then they become a threat to you. And so in verse 22, Abimelech's going to come and he's going to address that threat. And he's going to come with his general. And there was a little bit of rift going on at this point. 
Because Abraham, we'll see this in just a little bit, had dug this well in Beersheba, and some people of Gerar had stole that well. And uh, so Abraham might have been mounting an army to go get that well back. And so in verse number 21, it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all you do. Now that's a pretty uh, important compliment for Abraham right there. I mean, here is a guy who you could look at. And you could watch, and by watching this man and seeing how he's living his life and how God is blessing his life, you could come to the conclusion that God was with him in all that he did. So Abimelech and Fickle understood why Abraham had, had, had been blessed and why he had become a force to be reckoned with. The reason was that God was with him in all that he did. And so they saw him being blessed. They saw his servants being multiplied, and they, were, they feared Abraham at this point. Not only that, Abimelech had a firsthand look at Abraham's relationship with God when, when uh, he took Sarah into his harem, and uh, he, he uh, uh, was, was going to have relations with her, and God came to, to Abimelech in a dream, and he said, Look, you, th- these are my people. You mess with Abraham or Sarah, and you're as good as dead. And, and he also, at that point, God put a curse on Abimelech and the people of Gerar. And the way that curse was removed was that God told Abimelech that Abraham was a prophet. So you need to get, he's my prophet. And so you get Abraham to pray for you, and this curse will be removed. And sure enough, Abraham prayed for him, and the curse was removed. And so, so they're watching Abraham, and Abraham certainly looks like a man of God. And then all of a sudden, they have a child when they're 100. And here's Sarah, and she's 90, and she's nursing a baby. Now, that's pretty miraculous. And they see this, and so they, you know, what other conclusion could you come to but that God was with him in all that he did? You know, I wonder if people could say that about you. I wonder if they could say that about me. That God is with me in all that I do. I mean, can people say that about you? I mean, I, I, I wonder. I mean, do they see God doing wonders in your life? Do they see God blessing your life? Do they see you praying to God and getting your prayers answered? I, I mean, if they don't, then you're no different from the people of the world. You don't really have any kind of witness. I mean, people need to see God doing wonders in your life. Well, what wonders does God do in your life? Well, I'll tell you the wonder he did in my life and what everybody who ever knew me before 1989 has seen. God made me a new creation in Jesus Christ. And everybody who knows me that knew me before I was saved knows that God did wonders in my life. Now, they don't necessarily like uh, those wonders, but they know that I'm a different person. My wife can attest to that. My children can't because they were born shortly after I was saved. So the George they see is the George that, that wasn't the George that was the George in 1988. And that George was definitely a different George. But God has done a wonder in my life. But that's not all God has done in my life. I mean, God answers our prayers, and my children see that God answers my prayers. God, God, God blesses us. 
God has blessed our life tremendously. And you, you, you know, I can, you can look upon this country and you can see God's hand on the, on the United States of America, at least up till now. We're going, it's almost like we're going down the tubes now. But people ought to be able to look at our lives and they ought to be able to see that God is with us in all that we do. He answers our prayers. He does wonders in our life. He saved us in a wonderful way. And we're different people, and people ought to be able to see that. If they can't, then, then there's something really wrong with our, with our uh, walk of faith. All right, now, so here they were these men, and they're in awe of Abraham. Abimelech and Fickle and the rest of the people in Gerar, they're in awe of Abraham because God is with him in all uh, that he did. And so they feared him. And they wanted to make a treaty with him so that that he didn't mount up an army and go to war against them. And and I actually, if God was with him, then they knew they were going to be defeated in that war. And so they wanted a treaty with Abraham. And that's what happens here as we pick up in verse number 23. Now, so Abimelech is speaking, he says, Now therefore swear to me by Elohim, by God, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring. So this is a generational covenant. It's not just uh, Abimelech saying, I want this covenant not just to be for this generation, but for the generations to come. Or with my posterity, uh, with my prosperity and peace. Don't mess with that. You got, I want you to swear you won't mess with that but that according to the kindness that I have done to you. Now, what kindness had Abimelech done to Abraham? Well, he had given him a place to, to, to graze his cattle. He had given him a large chunk of land to live in, and, and uh, probably a very fertile place, same place, again, that David chose when, when he was living in the land of the Philistines, a pl- place in the land of the Philistines that was really close to the promised land. And, and so, but according to that kindness that I have done for you, you will do to me and to the land in which you now dwell. And Abraham said, I will swear, but there's an issue between me and you that we've got to get settled first. I'll swear, but first we've got to settle this issue. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. All right, now apparently what Abraham had done, he had left Gerar for a period of time, a short period of time. He had taken a bunch of servants with him. He had spent some money, and he had gone down to Beersheba in the Promised Land. He just crossed right over that border. Ziglag is really close to Beersheba, if you look at it on a map. And he had crossed over, and he had dug this well in the Promised Land. And as he dug the well, he struck water. Well, in that Arab country, or in that Palestinian culture, uh, when you struck water, that was much more important than striking uh, gold or oil. And so when some of the people in Gerar heard about the fact that Abraham had struck water, they came and seized the well. And, and uh, so Abraham wanted it back, and he wasn't going to make a treaty. He said, look, I'm going to mount up an army, and I'm going to get that well back if you don't give it back to me. So in verse number, and I'm not going to make a treaty until you agree to do that. So in verse number 26, and Abimelech said, uh, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me about it before now, nor have I heard heard of it until today. But I'll be sure to get your well back for you. 
So then in verse 27, Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Well, by this time, Abraham's sheep and oxen had multiplied to the point he had more than he had ever need. Actually, a lot of his sheep and oxen came from Abimelech. So really, basically, all he's doing here is giving Abimelech back what Abimelech had already given him. So he's really not losing anything at this point. Now, verse number 28. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs in the flock by themselves. Now, what's a ewe lamb? A ewe lamb is a female lamb, and I'm sure these lambs had special markings or they were, had a distinct color. There was something about these lambs that set them apart from all the other lambs. So Abraham took seven ewe lambs from, from the flock by themselves, and then Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, and they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Now, we've looked at biblical numbers before. What's the number seven mean? It means perfection or completion. And so he gives him seven lambs to, as a reminder of the completed contract between him and Abimelech, this, that they were going to have a contract that was going to last for their lifetimes and for their descendants' lifetime, whereby Abraham would not mess with Abimelech and Abimelech would not mess with Abraham, and especially with Abraham's well in Beersheba. Abraham wanted that well in Beersheba really bad, even though he lived in Gerar. Then verse number 31. Therefore he called the place Beersheba, Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Well, Beersheba, the name Beersheba itself, Beer means well, Sheba means seven, and seven means completion. So, so you could look at this a couple of ways. Uh, uh, the, the well of sevens or the well of the oath. Uh, the well of the complete oath. The well of the complete contract. Then verse number 32. Thus they made a covenant in Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Fickle, the commander of his army, and returned to the land of the Philistines. Now I've got a hunch I can't be sure. We won't be able to find out till we get to heaven. You probably won't even care once you get there. I might look them up to see. But I have a hunch that Abimelech got saved through the witness of Abraham and through the encounter that, and maybe more than one encounter, that he had with the Lord himself. So if he didn't get saved, he was a really stupid, hard-hearted guy. He doesn't seem to be like that. He seems to be a man of integrity. And I think a man of integrity would look at the truth and say, hey, Jehovah is God, and he would put his faith in Jehovah God. And I have, I, I have a hunch that maybe him and, and, and Fickle got, uh, both got saved. I mean, Fickle might have been a Fickle believer, but at least he was saved if he got saved. All right, now, then uh, verse number 33. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. Now, we got a translate that properly there. Actually, he planted a grove of tamarisk trees. And if you got it, in some translations, you'll see that, a grove of trees. That's a much better translation because that's a more accurate translation. He, and Abraham planted a grove of trees in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of, Lord, of the Lord, the everlasting God, Jehovah El Olam. That's another name for God, Jehovah El Alon. 
Now here's Abraham. Now here's, here's the puzzling part of this passage right here as we come to the end of, of chapter 21. Here's Abraham, and he's settled in Gerar. He's, he's, he's probably in a really fertile land, a good place for his cattle, a good place to raise his family, family but where is he supposed to be? Where is it, where, what's his eternal home? It's the promised land. And so Abraham, really his heart is in the promised land. So, so here he is in Gerar, and you've got to ask this question, why did he go to Beersheba and go to the expense of digging this well and planting this grove of trees? I mean, because Abraham was over 100 years old, and I think in his mind, I don't think he thought he was going to live much longer. And so why in the world would he spend all, why didn't he plant those trees in Gerar? Why would he plant them in Beersheba? Well, let me tell you why. Because he had an eternal perspective on life. Abraham, and, and, and really you see that in the name he calls the Lord at this point. He calls the Lord Jehovah El Olam, Jehovah the God everlasting, the God who makes everlasting covenants. Every covenant that God makes, unconditional covenant, is an everlasting, unless he puts a timeline on it, it is an everlasting covenant. It is impossible for God to lie. If God makes a promise, he cannot break the promise. It's not in his character to break the promise. And the everlasting God had made an everlasting covenant with Abraham that Abraham would have that land of Canaan as his possession for how long? Forever. Go back to chapter 17 when God made that covenant with Abraham. We're not going to look at the whole covenant, but just look at verse number 8 of chapter 17. He says, I Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be your God and I will be their God. So here is Abraham, and he's living in Gerar. And, but he has a heart for God, and he sees God as the everlasting God. And he has a heart for his homeland, Israel. And so he wants to go into Israel and make an investment in Israel, not in Gerar. Now, what's the closest place in Israel to Abraham at this point? It's Beersheba. So he goes to Beersheba, and he digs this well, and he plants this this grove of trees in Beersheba because Beersheba is his eternal home and Gerar is not his eternal home. Now, I don't think that Abraham thought he would ever live to see those trees fully grown. But it didn't matter to him because he he was looking at this situation with an eternal perspective. Uh, he knew that one day his descendants were going to live in this land. And if he was going to invest in a piece of land, it was going to be a piece of land in Israel. And he knew that one day that he was going to be raised by, from the dead by Jehovah, the God everlasting, and that land would be his to enjoy. He didn't know how long that would be, but he knew that one day he was going to occupy the land of Israel. 
And so in his mind, and rightly so, he was making an investment in his future. He was making an investment in eternity. But he doesn't get to go to Beersheba. He goes over there, he plants his grove of trees, he digs his well. But look at verse number 34 as we finish up. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. That means many years. We don't know exactly how long he lived in Gerar, but he lived there for many years. Probably Abraham thought he was going to die in the land of Gerar. And, and, and years passed, and he was still there. But then one day, probably when Isaac was past his teens, maybe a young man in his 20s, the Lord came to Abraham, and he told him, pack up and go back to the promised land. And guess where he went? He went to the closest place in the promised land that he could go to. He went to Beersheba. And by then, you know what had happened? Those tamarisk trees that he had planted had, were fully grown. Uh, they, the, the place had become an oasis. He had a well there, and that well was spouting water, and so the water was feeding the trees. And so it was, it was, it was like this beautiful paradise right in the middle of the desert. And not only was Abraham going to get to live there in eternity, he was going to get to live there in some of the latter years of his life. He spent several years in Beersheba. We know that Sarah died up at Hebron. Uh, maybe she died on a visit to Hebron. We don't know for sure. They might have lived in Beersheba the rest of their life, but they lived a good while in Beersheba. When Isaac's 33 years old or about that age, uh, he's going to. We're going to see in the next chapter. He's going to go up to Mount Moriah. He's going to. Uh, Abraham's going to take him up to Mount Moriah, and then when they leave, they're going to go back to Beersheba. So they're living in Beersheba at that point. Do you see the lesson here? Do you see what Abraham had learned? It's a lesson that God wants to teach all of us today. That we're not that. We're not to live for this present world so much as we're to live for eternity. We're not to see Jesus so much as the God of this age, although he is. We're to see him as Jehovah Alam, Jehovah the God everlasting. And that means that God has much more planned for you in your future. Than, this, than, just, than just this vapor of time that we live here on earth. He has an eternity plan for you. So it's a really wise thing to invest in eternity. I mean, Jesus is our eternal Father, and He has made us joint heirs with Himself. And that means that everything that the Father has planned to give His Son... He plans to give to you too. He plans to give to me. I heard a sermon this past week on this precept of being joint heirs with Jesus Christ. It comes from Romans chapter 8 and several, a few other places of the Bible. But uh, in this sermon, this pastor harped on the point that, that there is no such thing as a sub-heir with Jesus Christ. We are all joint heirs. That means that, that implies equality. We all have equal rights in all the things that Christ possesses. And how, 
How, how much does he possess? He possesses everything. We share equally. So there's no subpar children. And so we're equally loved by, by God. And we have the same access. We all have the equal access to all the blessings of God, both now and in eternity. You get that? We have equal access to all the blessings in the here and now and in eternity. Now, whether or not we access those blessings uh, in this life, that's up to us. It all depends on whether we live for eternity or whether we live for the here and now. And it's only, listen to me real carefully here, it's only when we're seeking eternal blessings in this life that we have a bounty of spiritual and material blessings in this life. If you live for this life and this life only, you're going to live the most miserable of lives, especially if you're a Christian. But if your focus is on eternity, you're ensuring yourself a blessed life on this earth. Now let me give you some examples, and I'll start with one of the most important examples, and that's for parents here, for all of us parents here. Shame on us if we don't have an eternal perspective while raising our children. And what do I mean by having an eternal perspective in raising our children? It means that our most important goal for our children is not their secular success. Did you get that? Our most important goal for our children is not their secular success in this world. That's not our most important goal. Our most important goal is not what job they get. Our important, most important goal is not what, what, uh, how big their house is or how many cars they have or any of those things. It, it's really not even their happiness. I mean, I'm not saying those things are important. But our, our most important goal, and, and shame on you if this is not your goal, our most important goal in for raising our children is to, first of all, ensure that they get saved. That is our most important goal. And not only that, that they're brought up in a way that they should go so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. That is a promise from God. I remember years ago, and I think I shared, with this, shared this story with you, way back when sometimes, so, so some of you have heard it before, but years ago when I was in seminary working on my MDiv, I was taking an Old Testament survey class, and the professor, we were, we were going into what they call in Old Testament survey wisdom literature, the Psalms and Proverbs and, and Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. They call that wisdom literature. And the professor made the point that you have to approach in your hermeneutic interpreting wisdom literature different from the way you interpret the rest of the Bible. Because wisdom literature is not the word of God. The the Proverbs are not promises of God. The Psalms are not promises of God. They're precepts that help us to live a holy life, but they're not uh, truly the word of God. Well, 
I kept my mouth shut for a long time, and that's really hard for me to do. But I kept my mouth shut and heard several of these these things similar to this up until this point as we were taking the class over the over the semester. But at this point, I had to raise my hand and say something. I said, "Where? Who has the authority to say that this section of scripture is not the word of God, and the rest?" of the scripture is. I mean, who gets to pick and choose? I mean, if you say wisdom literature is not the word of God, then I can say the gospels are not the word of God. So you've got to reinterpret the gospels, which is exactly what some people do. The gospels are just about a good man who was a philosopher that, that gave us all sorts of good principles for living life. You can't really look at it supernaturally. So you start, to, or other people will look at Genesis and say, that's not really the word of God, especially the first chapter there about creation, that's not really the word of God. Uh, you, you, you have to interpret that differently than you do the rest of Scripture. Well, who, what are we doing when we do that? We're playing God ourselves. And anybody who's born again believer, truly born again, knows that the whole Scripture, and I'm not saying this professor wasn't born again, but... I would worry a little bit about it uh, because I believe the reason I know this is the word of God isn't that I'm more intelligent than anybody else. The reason I know the word, this is the word of God because this is inspired by the spirit of God who lives in me. And all, it's the, the Bible says all scripture is inspired by the word of God. So now if you're inspired and you're reading an inspired book, you know that it's the word of God. Well, I didn't get into all of that with him because I wasn't going to sit there and say, you've got some serious spiritual problems if that's what you believe. But I wasn't going to do that. But, but he raised the question. He said, how do you handle Proverbs 22, 6? Raise up a child, which is an imperative, by the way. That's God giving all parents an imperative. Raise up your children in the way they shall go. And then comes a promise. And when they are old, they shall not depart from it. Now that's either the word, that's either a good principle to live by, or that's a promise of God. If you believe this word, this whole word is inspired, then I believe because of the structure of that verse, you've got the imperative to do this, and then you've got the promise on the back end of the verse, and the back, the promise is that if you do raise up your children in the way they shall go, when they are old, they will not depart from it. That doesn't mean there won't be some time in between when they get, if things get pretty hairy there. But when they're old, they will not depart from it. They'll be believers in the end. And I believe that to be a promise of God. Well, this pastor said, you know, I've been pastoring for, I mean, this, this professor was a pastor, and he said, I've been pastoring for 40 years. And, and I've seen a lot of children of good people, good Christian people, who, who invested in their children and raised their children in the way they should go, and, and uh, they departed from it. And so this can't be. A promise of God. I've said, first of all, you can't base your theology upon experience. I mean, you base your theology upon experience helps, but that doesn't always prove something right or wrong in the Bible. Uh, what proves something right or wrong in the Bible, did God speak it? And if God spoke it, then it's true. And if God says, 
you, if you raise your children up in the way they should go, when they are old, they shall not depart from it, then God means that. And I have I said in the class, I said, I, I haven't been a pastor for 40 years, but I have watched parents over, over the years. I've watched my own parents. And I don't believe that most parents, even good parents, raise their children up in the way they should go. I as, have now been a pastor for 20 years, and I have seen very few, very few, few parents who raise their children up in the way they should go. Now, as I mentioned when we were having this diatribe in this class, that's where the gospel comes in. We fail as parents, and Christ comes in and covers our failings with his blood. Christ answers our prayers when we pray for our children. So, so we're going to fail. But that doesn't mean the promise isn't true. I mean, but to raise your child up in the way they should go requires a tremendous investment of time and energy and money. Believe it or not, it takes money to raise children. All you parents know. That means that every day that they're under your roof, if you're going to raise them up in the way they should go, then you have to live out your role as a parent with an eternal perspective. What am I allowing my children to do that's good for eternity? And what am I allowing my children to do that's going to destroy them for eternity? And so, when they're under our roof, we need to be planting seedlings. We need to be planting this word. That takes time and energy to take your children aside and study the Bible with them and read the Bible to them uh, and, and, and plant this word into their heart. You've got to spend time to do that. And most parents don't do that. And not only that, You've got to dig spiritual wells into their life. How do you do that? By praying for your children as they're growing up. By, by setting an example for them. And when I talk about setting an example for your children, I'm not talking so much about you, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't fool around. You shouldn't be doing that as a, as a good Christian parent anyway. But I'm talking about setting the example of a real relationship with Jesus Christ in your life. I mean, they, they see, like, like uh, uh, Abimelech and Fickle observed Abraham, and they could see that God was with him in all that, they, that he did. They should, your children should be able to look at you and see that God is the most important thing in your life, that he is with you in all that you do, that you, you're more concerned about God and eternity than you are about anything in this life. And that requires time. It requires energy. It requires a great effort. And very few people are willing to make that effort. It's a battle. I'm talking about a battle to raise your children up in the way they should go. It's a battle. But I'll tell you this right now. It's a battle you're going to lose if you don't make that investment in your children. 
I mean, we live in a world that is anti-Christ more than ever. And the devil is using this anti-Christ world to destroy our children. I mean, everything on that television set, just about everything, I don't care if it's sports or whatever's on there, is anti-Christ. You take your kid to a movie. Brenda was telling me about a movie she watched about, about a dog making his way home the other day, and the dog's taken in by a homosexual couple. Now, that, I mean, they're good at every, every aspect of our life that's thrown into our face. I mean, everything... Everything we look at is antichrist. Or an adulterous couple. Or a couple who who's, 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 has, has a gambling habit or a drinking habit. I mean, everything in the movies is antichrist. And you're going to lose that battle if you're not willing to make a serious investment in the life of your children. But here's the good news. If you make that investment in eternity, then in the here and now, you're going to reap the blessing of having children that bless you instead of uh, giving you a world of grief. I mean, one of the things I didn't add to that as far as investing in our children is the discipline of our children. You've got to discipline your children. If you don't discipline your children, you don't love your children. And part of raising up your, your child and is disciplining your child. And that's as part of loving your child. So parents, I mean, you want to be investing in eternity. And, 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 and all of us need to be investing in others through our prayers. We need to be digging spiritual wells for our lost loved ones. We need to be praying, uh, investing in eternity by praying for, for those neighbors and relatives and friends that are lost. And hey, you know what might happen if they get saved? I tell you what, I was a much better relative and friend and neighbor after I got saved than I was before. So you might end up with a really good neighbor if you pray for your neighbor. Instead of that grouch that lives next door to you, you might end up with a really good neighbor. So pray for them. I'm going to probably make some people uncomfortable here, but we need to be investing in groves of time and money and, and, and for eternity, for eternal things. And then what we sow for eternity, we will reap in this life. That's what the Bible says. You sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. And so the more we invest our time and our money and our energy and our service into eternity, the more we're going to bless our life that we're living right now. And then most importantly, most importantly, when with eternity in mind, we take the time and effort to dig wells of worship. Worship. When we worship God like we're going to worship Him in eternity, I'm going to tell you what, in eternity... There's not going to be anything we're going to want to do more than worship God. Because there's nothing like being in the presence of God. And if we'll diligently seek God now, diligently worship God now, then in order to experience Jehovah El Olam, Jehovah the Lord everlasting, 
then we're a lot more likely in this life to experience Jehovah El Panim, the God of the present. Jehovah, the God of the present. And really, the Panim means face. It means to be face to face with God. Jehovah El Panim means to be face to face with God. And, and God becomes the God of the present, not just the God of eternity, not just the God way up in heaven, the God who is here and the God who is now. The psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 46. He exhorts us to worship the Lord now, for he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. He is our refuge and strength, a very present Panim, the face of God. He's a present help in our time of trouble. So keep digging those wells. I mean, or start digging those wells. Keep planting those trees or start planting those trees with eternity in mind. Spend your time, your money, your effort with eternity in mind. And what you'll soon discover is that not only are you investing in eternity, you're investing in the present now. You're making a tremendous investment in your present life when you invest in eternity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy, Lord, on all of us. And Lord, on on all of these matters, because we're so occupied with this present life. Lord, we all seem to fail. But Lord, that's where your grace picks up. Lord, your grace is for every person in this room. Your grace is for me and everybody here. Lord, to overcome those areas where we fail. But Lord, we want to live a good life now. And and so Lord, we can only do that as a Christian when We're spending our time and energy and efforts in eternal things. So teach us to do that, Lord. Teach us to be the kind of people you would have us to be. And, Lord, we just thank you that those kind of blessings are only possible through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And we just thank you for him. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.